We really screwed ourselves this time. Trying to try to stay there for the last shot. I don't even know where we are now. But I know they I know they uh, they followed us and we lost everything trying to escape. We're screwed, we're trapped. Watch it, Alan, I'm shooting. Oh, good lord. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. Welcome to the Bloody Pit. Today, I am here with a friend from across the ocean. Yes, his name is Adrian Smith. Adrian, tell people about yourself. Hello, I'm very happy to uh, to be on the podcast. I have been a movie fan for about 40 years, I suppose. Um, I'm currently a doctoral student at Sussex University, writing about old films that nobody else is really interested in um but i also write for cinema retro magazine and i write sometimes for scream magazine which hopefully some of your listeners are familiar with i wrote an article in the in the current issue about psychomania which is quite a fun film that uh, is a fun film yeah i uh it's just come out on blu-ray so uh i managed to track down one of the original members of the cast who has never really done an interview about the film before so that's quite an exclusive so you know go out and buy it cool is the uh, the interview the centerpiece of your article um i've just kind of woven it in because she, she didn't have a lot to say about it particularly so i've just put some of her comments in um so no it's not the basis of the whole thing i've i've done a pretty thorough examination i think it's uh i wrote yeah, because i'm in academic mode at the moment because i'm writing a thesis so everything else that I write tends to turn into an essay. So it's a big <laughs> psychomania essay, basically, with comments from one of the stars of the film. Well, that's exactly the kind of stuff I love to read, so good. So what uh, besides psychomania, what would be uh, your, your idea of the perfect B-movie? The perfect B-movie? It's hard to say. I'm really into Italian film at the moment, which is sort of partly why we're doing this, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I've been watching a lot of Giallo. I didn't used to watch. I, I, I never really watched Giallo or 
particularly anything by Argento. I tried watching Suspiria when I was 16, and it was too weird for me, and I switched it off after about 10 minutes. <laughs> and that, that kind of put me off for a long time. So in the last two or three years, I've been trying to catch up. So I really enjoy Italian films now, and uh, Mario Bava, obviously, is, uh, is a big favourite. Oh, but, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. But I also have a soft spot for Boris Karloff. I love anything that Karloff is in. Um, so yeah, and I've also you know Roger Corman, big fan of all the Corman stuff. So it's hard to pick one particular film, you know. I'm, uh, but certainly in the last uh, couple of years, when I get a chance to watch a B movie, it's either something Italian or possibly Japanese, because I've also been enjoying the Arrow video releases, like the um, Female Prisoner Scorpion and Lady Snowblood and stuff like that. Oh, those are fantastic films. I love those movies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they really um, particularly enjoyed Lady Snowblood. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I was expecting something good, but I wasn't expecting it to be quite so horrifically over the top. Well, uh, and it's really amazing. an art film with a lot yeah. of violence. Yeah, and I felt that way with the uh, the first female prisoner scorpion film, which I just watched recently. It's very artfully done. It's very theatrical. Uh, the sort of the way some of the scenes are done it is literally like you're watching a play uh-huh. and you see parts of the set revolve and you see the lights change color to reflect the mood of the character and all that all this kind of uh, i think that maybe it's a reference to sort of kabuki type stuff i don't really, really know enough about japanese culture to say that with any authority but uh, but i love the way that they're very theatrical but yet also very visceral and violent and uh yeah. So I'm. Um, have, so uh, have you uh, only seen the first one? So far, yeah. I got the box set recently. I've only had a chance to sit and watch the first one, but I really enjoyed it. Oh, you've got some great viewing in front of you. Those are great films. I love all of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, because uh, I think perhaps because I watch the Italian films, part of at the moment, partly I'm watching those thinking about my thesis. So the Japanese films are nothing to do with anything I'm studying. So I can watch <laughs> those purely for fun. So, uh, so yeah, I really enjoy those. Well, um, I do understand needing to watch something to either cleanse your palate or to just shift you out of one mindset into another, especially yeah. if you're doing something academic. Um, yeah. Tell me, you were the one who proposed covering Cannibal Holocaust. I have a yeah. question. Why? <laughs> it's a one word, big one word question. Yep. Um, why Cannibal Holocaust? Well, Okay, so I have enjoyed listening to your stuff on uh, Margaretti. Oh. Um, because I love Margaretti films, and I'm no, by no means a completist with Margaretti, but I intend to be. When I, finish my, when I finish my thesis, and when I also finish a book I'm writing about Norman J. Warren, the next project I have in, in the back of my mind is to do something on Margaretti. So possi- I might possibly just do a blog um, <laughs> to start with rather than attempt a book. But yes, I'm a big fan of Margaretti. And so because I found out that you were too, I thought I would contact you and you were the person that I should talk to about Cannibal Holocaust. Why, you might ask, is what is the connection? (laughs) Well, Ruggiero Deodato, the director of Cannibal Holocaust, worked on the Gamma One films. Uh He he was a good friend of Margaretti and was his uh, second unit uh, director. So I thought that was a pretty cool fact and a good link into what you'd already been doing with your sort of sort of occasional series of Margaretti films. 
Well, it is interesting to look back at uh, Diodato's career and realize just how many uh, movies he worked on in the 60s and early 70s that are really big-name films. They're very famous in a lot of circles and are very well regarded, and he was assistant director or worked on you know worked on them in different capacities when you realize that he was involved with you know Django and a bunch of other things like that it's really kind of a surprise it shouldn't be because of course there's an apprentice system or there was an apprentice system in Italy at the time and that's how you worked up to the director's chairs you learned all the various different jobs and this is how things got done but uh he certainly learned at the feet of people who knew how to do a lot of different things, and it shows in his movies later on. Yeah, he because um, I, I was lucky enough, I've met him a couple of times, and I did an interview with him about five, or four, four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, when he received a Lifetime Achievement Award here in, in London at a film festival, and I was able to sit down with him for 20 minutes. Um, although, because he was speaking everything in Italian, and it was having to be translated to me, so in uh-huh. effect, I basically had a 10-minute conversation with him that lasted 20 minutes. <laughs> but um, I wanted to talk to him mostly about that stuff, his time in the 60s, because I knew everyone else there would probably talk to him about the video nasties. So I um, I wanted to talk about who he'd worked with, and he was he really enjoyed that, I think. It was interesting for him, hopefully. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, so we talked about some of the directors who were his influences, and he mentioned Roberto Rossellini, who was yeah. the great, the great neo-realist director, and he'd worked with him. And that's interesting when you think about Cannibal Holocaust and the way that it looks so real, the way that he made it feel like it was really happening. And so you can trace that back to Rossellini, and then obviously well, Corbucci. He told me that Corbu- he says Corbucci taught me about cruelty and how to wake up and startle the audience. So, you know, what he learned on Django, he was then able to apply to Cannibal Holocaust as well, which I think is really cool. Now, uh, um, sorry, did you, when did you first see Cannibal Holocaust? Was it a recent viewing, or is it something that you've known about and have seen long before? It's a film I'd known about for decades, uh, because I grew up in the 80s when we had the video nasty um kind of you know big political media storm back here in the early 80s and i remember all that so that was the title that always got everyone's backs up but i'd never watched it i think i'd I'd deliberately avoided it um i mean it was illegal here you couldn't buy it anyway so if you wanted to watch it it would be some third or fourth generation vhs copy so i did i deliberately i basically deliberately avoided the film for years and years and then when i went to this film festival and i knew Deodato was going to be there and I I managed to wangle an interview Um, and they were doing a screening that weekend of the film and it was the new um, it was the new HD restoration that they were showing so my first so I got lucky really that my first viewing wasn't a horrible VHS print but it was the brand new restoration it being introduced by Deodato himself so I guess I was watching it in fairly good uh, circumstances, but I was nervous. I was, I was, I was genuinely scared <laughs> as to what this film was going to do to me. So I was watching it to begin with. I was sort of wincing. I was, I was bracing myself to be horrified. But then straight away, that opening sequence with the, you know, the helicopter, the, the flying shots over the jungle, and uh, the score is really beautiful. Uh-huh. It kind of, it, it sort of disarmed me. You know what I mean? I, I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be okay. 
Um, and by the end of the film, I was just completely overwhelmed at how how brilliant I thought it was. And I wished in a way that I hadn't waited all those years to watch it. But well, maybe if, I think watching the film on an old VHS print yeah. probably helped make it seem more real and more horrifying. Exactly. That was my experience with the film. I first caught up with it about, oh man, 18 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. And right. um, it was on a, a bootleg VHS. And of course, all of the rumors, you knew all of the the controversy surrounding it. And so sitting down to watch it for the first time ever, I'm sitting in my living room alone, going <laughs> to watch this really nasty bit of film and see how it affects me. And uh, the fact that it was, you know, a not great looking print just added to the nastiness in a big way because it's, yeah. it's, it blurs the line. The film blurs the line very effectively, whether you know about its production history or not. It still does a very good job um, in a very clear print of fooling the eye and, and tricking your senses and making you think maybe this is real. This could possibly be real. And yeah. watching it in a degraded visual form just added to that. And it, got under my skin it made me feel mildly unwell um i was un i was completely impressed with the filmmaking especially you know an hour or two later after i've been able to absorb it and kind of think about it a bit and realize that this movie accomplished its goals in ways that i don't think a lot of other films of the type could ever possibly do and it yeah it does so well with what it sets out to do that it's, it's really kind of scary because as a visual experiment, it works on so many different levels and it's almost when you look back at it with a, with a clear eye to, to me, it's almost as if he had some very specific targets and he hit them, but to hit them, he used a scatter gun. He shot just as much artillery and violence at those targets as he could to make sure he hit them. Yeah. I mean, it, in many ways the film is too good and yeah. it's kind of a victim of its own success. You know, if he'd have made the special effects less good, so it looked a bit more fake or if he hadn't quite got the uh, found footage thing, right. So you could tell that they were only acting. Yeah. Which, which another filmmaker could quite easily have done, then I don't think we'd be talking about the film at all. But the fact that it's so good made it as powerful as it was, but also gave him all the problems that he then had with the film. And boy, did he have some problems. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's set the scene a bit. Uh, cannibal Holocaust is a 1980 Italian cannibal film. You best describe it as an exploitation film, but it's got a little bit more on its mind than... Um, your average exploitation film. Uh, they're not just trying to get bums on seats. Uh, Diodato really was trying to disturb and uh, hopefully point towards some things that uh, that disturbed feeling might make you think about. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like he's trying to make the ultimate cannibal film so that everybody else will stop making cannibal films. <laughs> but it didn't work because he even he <laughs> still made another cannibal film. Yeah, and Margaretti, of course, made one just after this as well. Yeah, yeah. The um, <laughs> well, but Margaretti's was a weird one. 
<laughs> it doesn't really fit with the the general cannibal setup, you know, in some weird ways. But that's no. a that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's Cannibal Holocaust, as we've already said, is an incredibly effective film. But it's also uh, whether you view this as a good or a bad thing, no matter what you want to say about it, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, many years later, did set the scene for the found footage genre in the horror field. It, um, it's the first movie to go out of its way to try to convince you that what you're seeing is real footage of real violence being shown to you in a way that um, is built to either confuse or, or just unsettle you. The creators of the Blair Witch Project in 1999 specifically referenced the fact that this was uh, a, a, an inspiration. This was uh, something that they used as a way to craft their found footage in their movie to hopefully have a similar effect. So whether you like that genre or not will will uh, I th- make I you judge this film less or um, more harshly. Sorry, I was going to say I definitely think that uh, the found footage horror film now is is kind of overdone, but occasionally you do still get some good ones. So it's really frustrating because yeah. in some ways I want to say, okay, we've seen enough found footage films. Can everybody just move on from that? But then somebody will actually make a good one again, and you think, oh, okay, it can still work. Um, but I agree. But, I agree. But here, Dear Dato – I mean, I was trying to think whether this is the first or not. I can't think of an earlier one, but it, it's it's so brilliantly done, complete with all the sort of film damage that you get in the last few reels that they're yeah. showing. It's just incredibly well shot. Well, he uh, very smartly folds in some things that make it even more realistic, not, uh, not just in uh, the footage itself and how it was shot, but in the presentation. When you have those markers that are like end-of-reel markers and things like that, it's, it, it points more and more toward a, a sense of what you're seeing being real, and it, and it helps to just get behind that resistance that your mind has to the fact that you know you're watching a movie and it's uh it's incredibly effectively done and he uses a lot of different techniques some of them are technical some of them uh, some of them are in how it was shot with a lot of handheld uh cameras and uh but some of it is also in how he carefully edited the footage itself so that it becomes more disturbing because it starts to like i say get behind you yeah, it's um, it's really incredible, and um, but obviously the the level of realism is also achieved not just through the shooting, but the fact that they went to the to the jungle and uh-huh. shot with real tribes, which which always amazes me when I watch the film to think some of those guys in there really were tribes people in the jungle, and it makes you wonder how how that must have been for the actors and the crew. You know, they're getting these tribes people that don't speak English and they're trying to direct them in a mixture of Italian and English and the local language. But they're getting them to act how to kill people and they're getting them to pretend to rape people and to eat people. And just <laughs> that, that, that just seems to me to be fraught with, uh, with potential danger. Oh, I, the fact that they managed it is astonishing to me. Today we are already on the threshold of conquering our galaxy. And in a not-too-distant tomorrow, we'll be considering the conquest of the universe. 
And yet man seems to ignore the fact that on this very planet there are still people living in the Stone Age and practicing cannibalism. Primitive tribes isolated in a ruthless and hostile environment where the prevailing law is the survival of the fittest. And this jungle, which its inhabitants refer to as the Green Inferno, is only a few hours flying time from New York City. Was it to remind us of this that four brave young Americans went there to make a documentary on life in the jungle? Was it also to remind us, for instance, that before venturing into space, we should become more acquainted with the planet we live on? Four young and fearless Americans, children of the space age, armed with cameras, microphones, and curiosity. Alan Yates, the director famous for his documentaries on Vietnam and Africa. Faye Daniels, his girlfriend and script girl, and their two cameramen and inseparable friends, Jack Anders and Mark Tomazzo. Four youngsters who never came back. But let's have a look at them at the beginning of their incredible adventure. Here at the border between Brazil and Peru, they are about to board a plane that will take them to the Rio Ocoro, a last outpost from which they will continue on foot, deep into the Amazon jungle, into the area known as the Green Inferno. Hey! All right. The film takes place in uh, 1979 with an American film crew disappears in the Amazonian rainforest while on an expedition to film a documentary about the indigenous cannibal tribes. Uh, The team consists... They're looking looking for the Yamamomo. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Which, um, from what I understand, um, the names of the tribes in this, um, I think one of them is an actual tribal name and one of them isn't, or something like that? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of made up and mispronounced uh, and real names, but not necessarily the actual tribes that they used in the filming. Okay, the the team that goes in is uh, it consists of four people: Alan Yates, who's the director; Faye yep. Daniels, who's his girlfriend and script girl; and then two cameramen, Jack Anders and Mark Tomaso. 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 Yeah. They do not come back. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the point of this film. Um, yeah, spoil- we see them much go of off on this expedition, and the point of the film is to uh, for have for a second expedition led by Harold Monroe, who's an anthropologist at New York University, to go in with a rescue team in hopes of finding the missing filmmakers alive. In anticipation of his arrival, the military in the country conducts a raid on a local tribe known as the Yakumo and takes a young male hostage in order to help negotiate with the natives. Um, now, I was thinking, Monroe, if this yeah. film was being made now, the second crew to go in with Professor Monroe would also have, a, he would have a film crew with him as well. Yeah. And he would be filming himself looking for the first film crew. Do you know what I mean? And it would also be a very militaristic second trip. Yeah. Yeah, he would be going in with a small army as well as a film crew. Yeah. But well, let's instead, talk a bit about. He, just, he doesn't bother take. He just takes a tape recorder. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, so after several days of trekking through the jungle, Moreau uh, encounters the Yakimo tribe. Uh, they arrange the release of their hostage in exchange for being taken to the village. Once there, the group initially meets hostility and learns that the film team that they're looking for had caused a great amount of unrest among these people. The next yeah. day. They shot one of them. There's a guy. There's a guy who's bleeding, yeah, to death because he was shot by one of the crew. Although, if you think about the the time it's taken between visits, he's been bleeding from that leg wound 
for about three or four months now. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Um, the but next anyway. day, Monroe and his guides head deeper into the rainforest to locate two warring cannibal tribes. The Yamamo... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to mispronounce these names because... It's okay. Is it the <clears throat> Yamamomo. Yeah, Yanamomo. Or Yamamomo. They, they mispronounce them in the film as well anyway, so... Oh, well, good. Then I'm in good company. Uh, <laughs> the Sh- and the Shamatari. Uh, they encounter a group of Shamatari warriors and follow them to a riverbank where they save a smaller group of Yamamoto uh, tribesmen from certain death. Grateful, those tribesmen invite Monroe and his team back to their village, yet they, uh, they treat the outsiders with a good deal of suspicion. To gain their trust, Monroe bathes naked in a river, um, yeah. By the way, the level of nudity in this film is off the charts. Well, it's interesting because that scene, Robert Kerman, uh, who plays Professor Monroe, he was a porn actor. Yeah. And he'd been in, I mean, he'd done mainstream and porn, but he'd done things like Debbie Does Dallas. That was kind of the softcore stuff he'd done, but he had done hardcore as well. But, and um, Diodato always claimed that he only found this out much later. He didn't know. <laughs> that Kerman was because Robert Kerman was trying to go mainstream. But I think, I mean, he, in the, in the end, he did about three different cannibal films, Robert Kerman. Um, yeah. He, he was in eaten alive right after this. Yeah. And then he went back to porn again. Um, but so that scene where he's bathing naked in the water, that was no big deal for him at all. Um, I read somewhere where Diodato said he was really amazed when he found out because uh, he thought Robert Kerman was uh, not exactly well endowed. So, <laughs> oh my God. Um, and the women that the local, the tribes women that get into the river with uh, Professor Monroe, yeah, they were all they were apparently hired from the local brothel. Well, they did seem very comfortable grabbing his junk, so yeah. And they seemed, I mean, I don't want to get too anatomical. An- anatomical <laughs> is that the right word? That's but the right they, word, as far as I'm they, concerned. They seemed quite well groomed for, uh, for wild tribes women. That you know? is true. These these are uh, these are this is a jungle tribe who uh, have lady shaves uh, <laughs> back in the back in the hut. Do you know? <laughs> well, you know what's weird is that uh, being a thoroughly modern man, it hadn't occurred to me that uh, they were completely well well groomed in certain ways. Because to be honest, these days, if there's any <clears throat> hair in the pubic area at all, I'm shocked and surprised. Yeah, so. and it's, that's always a reminder that you're watching a film from the 70s or 80s, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes, there's actual pubic hair. Yeah. I, I, I do. I have wondered amongst friends whether or not there's an entire generation of young men who will be utterly shocked if they ever encounter hair <laughs> ever on a woman yeah. beyond her head. So, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, uh, so there's, they, there's, uh, there's this. I mean, nothing. We should stress that this isn't a sexy scene. They no, don't get to the not. river and all start making out or anything. No. They just this, this uh, they, they laugh. Much. The women are all laughing yeah. at him and splashing him and tugging on him occasionally. <laughs> yes, which uh, would, like I say, looks uncomfortable to me. But yeah, but I, I mean, I'd be more worried about the piranhas personally. No kidding, and the snakes. <laughs> 
Well, uh, that uh, group of women do join him and playfully bathe with him. Bathe with him after they take him to a shrine where he discovers the rotting remains of the missing American filmmakers. Uh, so yeah. it's like they, the women, had to play with him in the river before they would let him discover the yeah. corpses. I guess he he had to gain their trust by showing what he looked like naked. I guess, yeah. And then um, they would they would show him where the remains were, and it, the shrine is really horrible. Yes, because it's all they're all sort of. All these bones are hanging from a, a tree or something. Yeah, and they seem and woven they're all tied together. together and there's a yeah. film camera tied in there. Well, this of course uh, upsets Monroe, and he decides it's it's of the utmost importance to recover all the film canisters that have been kind of tied to and woven into their corpses, and um, that is uh, that that is what they do. But uh, the film smartly. <laughs> jumps from that uh basically the the natives agree to trade it for the first teams uh they, they, they agree to a trade to get this stuff and um oh yeah the one thing they have to do is monroe has to take part in a cannibalistic ceremony yeah and uh which he does because he wants to get these film canisters uh because yeah. he feels that it would be it, it's and, first of all it's uh, necessary to they they cook um it's a member of their own tribe who was a criminal or something they've, they've executed him and then they cook him and you really see a lot of the detail as to how one, how one would go about preparing uh, and cooking a human on an open fire. Yeah. And it's, we're this, this we're skipping over some of the more controversial things in this film and let's kind of, <laughs> let's dig into this right now before I dig into, yeah. oh, that was the wrong choice so of to words. Speak. Um, yeah. So to speak, yes. Um, let's dig into this right now. By this point in the film, you've already been confronted. Before we even get to the quote-unquote found footage stuff, we're confronted by um, kind of the harsh realities of living in the jungle. And by this, I mean not just the, the dangers inherent in tra- traipsing through this part of the world. It is that we are being shown bit by bit. The movie eases you into it a little, but then once it hits it, it just... Doesn't yeah, doesn't up. stop. <laughs> uh, and what we're seeing are real acts of animal cruelty. And this is where the film starts to um, kind of work on you. No matter how you, no, no matter how inured you may be to uh, violence against animals, um, it is a little unnerving to see this stuff. And then it gets more and more unnerving as you watch this. Now, Let's be honest. There's a lot. There are a lot of animals we see killed on screen in yeah. this movie. Which um, which version of the film did you watch for this? Because it's available now in a there's kind of a what claims to be a cruelty free version that you can watch where the animal cruelty has been cut out. But you can I also watch the full that thing. version. I've never watched the animal cruelty free version because I feel I feel it would just be ridiculous because that's attempting to cut out part of the film that makes it yeah. most effective. And I think that that's the screening, the but. screening that I was talking about that I went to, um, that was introduced by dear Dato, That was his, what he's calling his director's cut. Cause he'd basically gone back through the film and trimmed slightly some of the more graphic bits of animal cruelty, but he's also, it's not just that it's been cut out. He's, uh, he's added film, uh, noise and scratches and stuff to it to oh. kind of cover it up. I so not it's not that. so much that those scenes are missing. It's just that you can't see quite as much as you can see otherwise. 
So it's huh. not actually as bad as it sounds. It isn't that they've just snipped them all out. Interesting. So it, I was unaware yeah. of this this technique that was being used. I was just it's been called the um, animal cruelty free version. So I just assumed that they were hacked out. Yeah. No. On the yeah. So on the um, on the Grindhouse Blu-ray. Yeah. I think. I mean, I haven't checked the Grindhouse version, but on the Shameless Blu-ray release in the UK, you can watch the the original film and the director's cut version. Cause he always said that he didn't like putting in the animal cruelty, but it was kind of part of the Mondo genre. And it was what the, uh, it was what was expected by the producers. Yeah. And I've never really believed his protests against not oh, wanting no. to put that stuff in the film. <laughs> I just, I, that's nice for him to say now. And I'm yeah. sure his feelings about this stuff has, ch- it's, it's changed over time. That seems yeah, pretty clear. Sure. But I don't believe that uh, at the time he thought very much about it more than it being a technique to make the film more realistic. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and it certainly does because it does feel like you're watching a documentary. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. it's disturbing. Um, yeah. I, I've talked about this on a few other podcasts. Um, I grew up uh, not on a farm, but visiting my grandparents farm on a pretty on a pretty regular basis as a child and so there's a certain amount of um, there's a comfortableness i feel around certain types of um, what some might term animal cruelty that makes it a little more difficult for me to get too concerned about some of this kind of stuff yeah. But I know it can be difficult for people who've never, you know, spent time on a farm or, you know, watched a cow be born or known exactly what it looks like when that chicken is running around and then no longer running around, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so um, it's um, it takes a little bit for it, this kind of stuff to bother me. So if you kill a snake on screen, which happens in this movie. Uh, yeah. That doesn't really bother me. Um, I've killed snakes myself because it's a dangerous, poisonous snake. Kill it. It's you know it's going to harm the chickens. It's it's the it's here for a reason, and you're you're I doing mean, this I, for. Purpose. I assume that in America you're all you're all constantly dodging dangerous snakes and, and spiders. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> I guess they're everywhere. They they live in the trees and they drop down on us. <laughs> Yeah. We're going to have to have you come over and witness some of the stranger flora and fauna. You won't believe the plants. They uh, they come right at you. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the thing is that um, this movie goes out of its way to present a number of different violent ends to different kinds of animals. It's almost as if they set out to make sure that no matter where your line on the acceptability of this was they were going to cross it. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, so in a way, uh, I'll be honest, most of the animal cruelty in this film does get to me, but it's hard for me to tell if it's each individual act on its own that would affect me or if it's just that there are so many. Yeah. But of course, um, and I mean, as Diodato has always pointed out, they were killing animals mostly uh, to eat. Yeah. Anyway, because they were in the jungle and they're working with tribes, people and whatever. And so these animals were genuinely being used as food. I mean, not all of them. There's a bit with the tarantula that gets chopped in half. I don't think they were going to eat that. No. Um, but, <laughs> but most of it is for food. And if you take a video camera into um, a slaughterhouse and just film how they kill a pig, to go to uh, 
or you know how to to kill a bull to go to McDonald's. It's really disgusting. Yes. And so the level of disgust that you can have watching those things in this film, arguably, is just the same as any animal being slaughtered for food. It's gross, you know. And it's you don't just, necessarily want to see it, but well, no, exactly. And when if you, I mean, I'm vegetarian anyway, so I can get a little bit on my uh, soapbox about this. But <laughs> people who eat meat but are afraid to be confronted by how that where that meat comes from is, I find, a little bit hypocritical. I mean, my sister, for example, she will only eat meat provided there's no real evidence that it ever looked like an animal anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if and, you, and if I you present- agree with you that it, that is hypocritical. <laughs> I mean, if you're not so, so with this film, he's basically saying this is how it, this is it, this is yeah. how it works, this is what it's like in the jungle. If people are going to eat a giant turtle, and mm-hmm. this is what it looks like when they cut it up, and it's just all in there, and it's horrible to watch. But I would argue that it's not; they're not being killed just for our entertainment. It was genuinely being shot as being you know as food preparation do you know what i mean and that is a good a good way to um describe the situation but of <laughs> course once you film the death of any creature it changes that event and i oh, think yeah. that that is a valid criticism of any filmmaker who's decided to film an actual death yeah. um it's it may be that you're killing that chicken and you're going to pluck the feathers off of it and you're going to cook it and you're going to eat it. But when you do that act, it's one thing when you film that act and display it for other people, that's a different thing. You are by virtue of, of showing the act to other people changing the nature of what you did. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You can look at apocalypse now as a sort of comparison, which I think came out just a bit before this. Yeah. And there was some criticism aimed at Apocalypse Now for the the sort of ritual uh, bull slaughter at the end. Yeah. But he argued that that was happening in the jungle and he just filmed it anyway. But because, is, it, was Apoc- is true. because it was Apocalypse Now, because he was Francis Ford Coppola, he kind of got away with it a bit more. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> if, he had been an, if he'd been an Italian director making a cannibal film called Apocalypse Now, it would have been a different matter. Agreed, but at the same time, it is the only animal cruelty in the film. It yeah. is. It does have a very specific symbolic moment. It, 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 there's a very obvious parallel between that slaughter of that animal and what's happening with Marlon Brando at the very same time. So yeah. one might say, <laughs> if one wanted to make the argument, that, yeah, it's it would have happened anyway, and he used the fact that this event happened to parallel it with the murder of a human being at the same time. Uh, Spoiler alert. Sorry, people Um, (laughs) for for apocalypse now. Yeah. But um, I I suppose you can argue that the, all the animals that got killed for cannibal Holocaust were only killed because there was a film crew in the jungle who needed to eat food. Yeah. They, they wouldn't have died if they hadn't have been there, which, you know, is a valid argument, but, but you know, yeah, but these animals are going to be eaten regardless. Yeah. So I can fall on both sides of that argument while yeah. not giving much credence to either side. If they, if someone wants to really fiercely argue, I will probably take the other side regardless of yeah. your point of view. 
being so because where where Deodato really blurs the bound, you know, blurs the lines even further with this film is that he includes documentary footage that shows real executions of people. Yes. So there's Which a is moment, disturbing on its own. And here's yeah. one of the weirder things about the movie. Uh, and this has always felt odd to me. When we see that real documentary footage of executions being carried out in, um, I forget which country it's in. It's in. Um, it's, uh, they're in Africa. It's like a, it, we, we, we see footage of a previous documentary that was shot by this crew right. uh, in Africa. And there's some firing squads and stuff like that. But the thing is, in this film, in Cannibal Holocaust, that footage of real executions, we are told in this movie, has been faked. Yeah. <laughs> but the but film also presents murders on screen that this movie is telling you are real, but that we know are faked. It's yeah. inverting reality yeah. in a strange way. And it's almost it's, as if it's, um, it's, it's kind of like flicking a finger at people to say, <laughs> no, the real thing I'm telling you is fake in the narrative of this film. The real thing is fake and the fake thing is real. Which is fascinating. It's, yeah, it's so clever. And that's what one of the things that really sort of converted me to the film because I was expecting one thing and then what I got was this really intelligent piece of filmmaking uh-huh. um, and brave piece of filmmaking that you just couldn't ever imagine anybody doing. And the fact that he did it just blew me away. And that's why, although it's not necessarily what I would put on for fun, no. And I, I don't even know if I ever want to watch the film again after doing this podcast, but it's a film that all that, you know, will always stay with me, I think. Well, that's but, just it. This is uh, to, to, to prepare for this podcast. I watched this film for the first time in years. I've owned the I've owned the disc for a while, but I've not revisited the film. Um, well, I'll be honest. I've watched this movie a total of three times in my life and I have no <laughs> and I have no idea if I will ever watch this movie again, that's three times in almost 20 years. So it's not, it's not a party film. No, (laughs) not something to revisit unless you're mentally prepared for it, or you have some specific task, like someone named Adrian wants to talk about it on a podcast. (laughs) The tree people would not let us bury the ghastly remains, which they had painted ochre to drive away the evil spirits, which the dead represented. Once again, I ask myself, what unspeakable crime could have called for such atrocious retribution? I know our lives are hanging by a thread, but I can't turn back without at least trying to recover the footage that Alan Yates and the others paid for with their lives. I am thinking of the enormous human and scientific interest it is going to contain. I must do something. Chaco and Miguel can't possibly understand this, yet I must somehow gain the confidence of these savages. After all, they too have rules of conduct. Um, okay, so once Professor Monroe has gotten his hands on the footage, yeah. um, they go back to New York, and the executives of the Pan American Broadcasting System invite Monroe to host a broadcast of the documentary to be made from the recovered film. Monroe insists on viewing the raw footage first. This was a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what they were going to do. They were just going to put it out live without checking it first. Which n- no one would have done. That's crazy talk. Yeah. Well, well, I, exec- like, I, like his pla- I like his plan here, not only to check all the footage, but he goes out and tries to interview uh, members of the families of the 
yeah. the lost crew, which is that's another nice little level in the film where we get into a sort of documentary style again. Um, and you, with, with you a, know, this is the presenter, and it's really clever. Yeah, and it's it's clever in another way in that it shows us people who care about these these dead people before we start examining the footage along with Monroe and learn what their true neighbor, what their true natures really were. Yeah. Well, the executives first introduced him to Alan's work by showing him an, an excerpt from his previous documentary. Um, that's the, it's called the road to hell. And it's the one we were talking about earlier with the oh, actual yeah. uh, execution footage. Um, but then one of the executives tells Monroe that uh, Alan, the director staged this uh, stuff to get more exciting footage. Um, Monroe then views the recovered footage, which first follows the group's trek through the jungle. Um, we see them, before they set out, we see them uh, being joined by the fifth member of their group, who's their guide. And then, uh, after walking for days, that guide, Philippe, is bitten by a venomous snake. And this is where the movie ratchets things up. Uh, because we, after he's bitten by this snake, the group amputates uh, Philippe's leg with a machete in an attempt to save his life, but then he still dies, and uh, yeah. they kind of sort of bury his corpse and carry on. This is where the film, as I said, ratchets things up, but also takes a turn for uh, you can hear that you can hear the change in the music. We are being shown this footage and, and we see them amputate the leg. Uh, heat up the machete, try to cauterize the wound, and it does no good, and the man dies anyway. <laughs> this is where the film kind of drops its cards on the table and goes, "There's going to be more of this." I've seen I've seen scenes like this in lots of different movies that didn't turn into something like Cannibal Holocaust. Had you seen something of this nature in other types of films? Um, what do you mean, other cannibal films? Well, they're just um, the kind of thing where you see, you would see a, a, a leg amputation on screen. Well, oh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, in The Walking Dead, we see it all the time. But in, oh, yeah, terms, yeah. Of, in terms of films from that sort of period, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly, particularly because the camera is shaking around a lot when they're shooting it. It feels yeah. very real and very brutal. And it, yeah, and and it's that tone that the film is 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 kind of announcing itself with this is where we take it to a different level. Yeah. Um, and what's, uh, I can tell you a little bit, uh, uh, one of the things I was reading, um, the actor, uh, Carl York, who plays Alan Yates, mm -hmm. he was brought in at the last minute to replace another actor. So they'd already started shooting with somebody else who then pulled out. And apparently the scene with the leg amputation, um, if you look closely, he's not in that scene. Because yeah. that was shot before Carl York had arrived, so I think like you see him in the lead up to it, and then you and maybe they give him the camera or something. I'm not sure how they did it, but he's not there because it was before he was in the movie. Yeah, and, and I think uh, they have him uh, do a little bit of voiceover during the after the yeah. while well, they're quote unquote burying him. Yeah, that uh, kind of ties him to the footage. Yeah, which is very clever. Apparently, he, he claims that the only reason he was cast was because he had the same shoe size as the previous actor. <laughs> so he could just put on the same costume that they'd already made. <laughs> which doesn't surprise me. No. <laughs> well, the remaining four That's in the group we see uh, finally succeed in locating uh, the Yakimo. Um, 
Jack shoots one of them in the leg so they can easily follow him to the village. This is yeah, nice your guy. first indicator of just how ruthless and nasty these people are. Once they arrive, the film crew forces the entire tribe into a hut, and then they burn it down in order to stage a massacre for their little film. Monroe, while watching this footage, expresses concern over the stage scenes and the poor treatment of the natives, but uh, the executives really just kind of brush over this stuff and, and think that he's making something large out of something that doesn't really matter. And it, and it always amazes me that it just they, they, they clearly, when they set fire to that thing and they rush everyone in, they're filming themselves doing it. So it's not like they're trying to hide the evidence that, you know, they're not trying to cover up their crimes. It's like they're quite proud of themselves. And it just seems as if they know that they'll be able to control this footage in the editing and yeah. make it seem as if it's something different. Yeah, because they try to claim it's evidence of the war between the tribes, don't they? Yeah, because that's exactly what he says. They do that uh, They do that turnaround thing like a newscaster where you have Alan standing there pontificating about what, that, what they've just shot. And, of course, yeah. putting a complete bullshit spin on what's been done. And yeah. he does that several times, and I think that that is where you start to see in those uh, quote-unquote newscaster segments is where you start to see Diodato um, making very pointed and specific commentary about um, how news or what we perceive as news is presented by yeah. Uh, television. Yeah. It's a little disturbing, <laughs> and it's – as we as we've we spoke about previously, the movie doesn't just work on the level of gross-out factor. There's a lot of that in the movie with the animal cruelty and some of the things we'll get to in a minute. But also, he's working on your emotions in different ways. He's pulling on several different threads at once, and one of them is that you're becoming more and more disgusted by these characters, even though we know they've already they've already paid the ultimate price for their misdeeds. Watching them work their way toward their eventual end is it's disturbing, but yeah, it's disturbing because you realize that they're doing every nasty thing they can think of and they lead themselves to their own demise. Yeah. And it's very much, um, I mean, if you look at the, the sort of the jungle film, in it, if you look at the Hollywood jungle movies or even some British jungle movies going back to the twenties and thirties and forties, they play very much on this idea of colonialism, you know, that we, uh, yeah. the white men go into the jungle to tame the savages and the uh, and the Italian, uh, kind of jungle films of the seventies do a similar thing. But instead of going to Africa where a lot of the Hollywood movies would go or the British movies would go, they go to South America because, that was where the Italians colonized. Um, and so if you, th you know, this, in this film, we've got our, our white men going into the jungle and just wreaking havoc. And it's like they're reenacting um, colonialism. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And that is another one of the levels that this film works on. Yeah. If you want to see it that way, the symbolic raping of these cultures, um, yeah is given violent form here in the form yeah. of actual rape. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's not very subtle symbolism. <laughs> no, no. But you but could it, very yeah, easily – I'm sorry, but uh, you no, could yeah, very easily say. just see this 
exploitation film as an exploitation film, or you can feel it worming its way into your mind in a, in a different way that didn't have to be there, but clearly is. You wouldn't be making certain statements within the dialogue of the movie if you weren't trying to underscore certain things. Yeah. It's, uh, it's well done. It's one of the reasons why this film kind of stood the test of time. Yeah. Um, it's distur- it's disturbing in weird ways. I'll put it that way. You expect yeah, it to be disturbing it, it, for what it presents. It's a shame. But. It's a shame. Like I was saying before, it's a victim of its own success. It's a shame that it's so disturbing because it deserves to be treated as a serious film. It deserves yes to have academics talking about it. It deserves to get retrospectives. Um, it deserves to be screened at the British Film Institute and as part of a season of important Italian films and blah, blah, blah. But it won't. <laughs> no, and, I, and part of that is the film itself, and a part of it is, I think, how the, the genre, and even the genre that this grew out of, the Mondo film, uh, how they're viewed still to this day. Um, I see a little bit more respect being paid to the Mondo film, the precursor to this, the... Yeah. the the, the kind of exploitive documentaries made in Italy and in a few other countries, but the cannibal genre, which is a direct outgrowth of this. Um, I don't know that it will ever receive the kind of attention that you're talking about there. I, I just think it's, it's a bridge too far for a lot of, uh, for a lot of critics and for a lot of uh, people who might otherwise be swayed. Yeah. I mean, the title doesn't help cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. Is an, is an, it's an awful in your face, title and if it, if it had maybe been called like you know the green inferno or the road yeah. to hell or something a bit more subtle that may have helped its reputation as well but uh calling it cannibal holocaust was like the final nail in the coffin of respectability <laughs> for this film well and you think about it the movies that came after this their titles played off of similar things i mean you yeah. make a film called eaten alive <laughs> or cannibal ferox yeah. and you know, there's no mistaking the the idea behind those titles. We're going to put that front and center. We're going to make sure that the people know, and that's what they're paying their money for. That's what that's yeah. how we get asses in seats. You know. Well, <laughs> um, uh, Monroe finishes watching all of this footage, all the recovered footage of the uh, the now the, the the dead team of documentary filmmakers. He expresses his disgust to the station executives about their decision to air this stuff. Uh, to convince them that they should not, he shows them the remaining unedited footage, which uh, only at that point he, he has seen. The final two reels begin with the team locating a young Yamamono girl. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing that name again. Yeah, Yamamomo, Yanamomo or Yamamomo, I don't think it matters. Yanamomo. <laughs> uh, okay, the, the, they find this girl off by herself. And the men film and gang rape this girl as Faye tries to stop them. Afterwards, uh, the the footage the footage picks up with them coming upon this same girl impaled on a wooden pole by a riverbank, where they claim in this footage that the natives killed her. But it seems pretty clear that this is once again Alan and his team fabricating footage fabricating an event to film it and to pretend that it was something different yeah and it's never made clear whether they raped the girl and then the tribe killed her 
or if they raped her and then they killed her themselves. I'm pretty convinced by the way the film presents everything that they did all of this, that this death, the death of this girl is something that they did themselves for the spectacular footage. They knew one of the most, one of the most disturbing parts of the whole film is the beginning of this scene when the camera is on Alan and Faye looking up at this girl on the spike and Alan is, he's looking really pleased and proud almost. Yeah. And then the guy says, watch it, Alan, I'm filming. Mm-hmm. And then he looks really serious and is like, Oh, who could have done such a terrible thing? Yeah. He, he, that, he realizes he's in the shot and he yeah. needs to alter his, his facial features so that he doesn't look like he's really yeah. thrilled to have found this. Yeah. I mean, it's a brilliant bit of acting. That look on his face just says the hot, says it all. Yeah. And if you weren't sick of these disgusting people by this point, this yeah. scene does it. And this is, of course, the most famous image from the film. Deservedly and so. It's the um, it's the part. It's one of the reasons that Deodato got into so much trouble. <laughs> yes, uh, because you, it you looks probably, very real. Oh, it's horrific. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, we should describe this for people who've not. Um, suffered their way through this film we should say um it's this young girl she's totally nude and from the way it looks someone has taken a pole and impaled her starting at her anus and taken the pole and shoved it through her her terse i mean uh, through her torso and up through her mouth so that the pole is entering her from behind and exiting through her mouth and the pole has been stood up in the ground so that her mouth and head are facing toward the sky. And yeah. it is horrific to see. It's an incredible effect. The um, So I asked Deodato a little bit about this because I'd heard this story and he, he told me that it was true because the film, when the film was released in Italy, um, he was basically taken to court and charged with murder. Yeah. Because the, the judge was convinced that Deodato had killed people in this film for real. And they built this problem for themselves because they had the actors sign uh, a contract that they couldn't participate in any, anything for the film. They couldn't be in commercials or in anything else that would put them Mm -hmm. in the public eye for a year after the film's completion so that they could play up the idea that this film just might be real. So they set this trap for themselves. Yeah, which they did. If you you talked about Blair Witch earlier, they did that with the Blair Witch Project. All the cast weren't allowed to do any publicity for the film to help to make it feel like they were all really dead. Yeah. And uh, Diodato said that he had a photo of him after they'd done that scene with the girl on the pole. There's Mm -hmm. a picture of him eating his lunch with her after they'd shot it. And they showed this to the judge. But the judge said that he'd obviously had lunch with everybody and then just killed them for the film. <laughs> so what he, what Diodato had to do was he had to rebuild this in, and do it in the court. He had to actually build the prop and yeah, the bicycle that seat moment. that she sat yeah. on and the balsa so a, wood thing that she was in her mouth. Yeah, so it's a girl very carefully balancing on a pole, basically. But it's mm. incredible, really incredible, and very. Uh, like once you've seen that image, you will never unsee it. No, and when you see 
the fact that that image is used in a lot of the advertisement for the movie all over the world, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that that advertisement alone was almost enough to get it banned in a lot of countries, whether they yeah. ever saw the film or not. That <laughs> image and it being a photograph and it looking that realistic probably did them just as much harm as good. Yeah, well, yeah, it was it it was too too good an effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's and when you when you find out how they did it, it's so simple. Yeah, it's a very easy thing to have accomplished. But man, it works. And I've seen a photo somewhere. I don't know where it is because I'm just looking in my book here and I can't see it in here. But there is a photo of that same scene, but she's got uh, some clothes on. So they shot a kind of they shot two versions of that, hmm. which, again, kind of proves that it wasn't true because. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you can't shoot of a death twice. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, that is pretty horrific. I mean, there are some other things, but I think before we even get to this point, we see other moments of quite horrible uh, brutality that they just happen to film. There's a moment where a pregnant woman is tied with her hands oh, yeah. to a, a bar while a load of other women around her perform some kind of abortion on her and then bury the fetus in the mud. Yeah. Just and that weird. does look like that. This doesn't appear to be something that's being staged by these scumbag documentary people. This seems to be something that they're just being lucky enough to catch. Yeah. And once again, it's another one of those things that just adds a level of creepy realism to yeah. all the other stuff. Particularly because they're using a real pregnant woman to do the scene. Yeah. Which and I mean, it's, I just and it's clear she's actually really pregnant. I mean, yeah, heavily so. I can't imagine how they directed this or how they persuaded these people to pretend to do this stuff. It just blows my mind that he could get them to do it. I don't know. don't know how they did it. From what I understand, uh, Diodato, when they were scouting for locations, he went down there. He contacted these people. He ingratiated himself with a lot of them. And they agreed to it and apparently were very excited and interested in doing this. They, One could argue whether they really understood what they were participating in, yeah. if they knew that what was going to be done was going to be used in the way it was going to be used. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of questions that are valid questions and there are I things mean, that yeah. we may never know. But One of the criticisms that you can quite easily make with this film is that he's exploiting, he's making a criticism of other filmmakers exploiting people by well, exploiting yeah. people. Exactly. <laughs> and it's I hate to keep using this word but it's disturbing because yeah. it's it's a meta disturbing level of the film it's outside of the film itself it's a, a criticism that is very valid to make that even if they were completely on board and and it does clearly appear that they were could they understand what was being done could they understand what their participation would mean for a view of these tribes, people, these people who live in, in this area of Colombia, was this something that they could even be in a position to understand being tribes, people without any real access to the wider world around them? Well, yeah, it makes you wonder whether they had a screening, doesn't it? At some point <laughs> down in the jungle. Well, um, I do know that, uh, Word is that they did have a screening in Colombia. I don't know if the tribes people were there, uh, okay. but it did not yeah. go well. <laughs> uh, now, whether it the, the 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 accounts I've read don't say whether or not it didn't go well. 
from the point of view of the tribes people, even if they were there, it doesn't give us that information. But apparently the Colombian natives, the people who, you know, were part of the normal modern world also were not pleased. Right. Well, I suppose because arguably they're again, just being presented as savages. Yeah. Although of course the point of the film is to say who are the real, you know, who I want, he says at the end, uh, I wonder who the real cannibals are. Yeah, and that's and so, something that's said a couple of times during the film by, yeah, that by sort of uh, risk. the professor character. And yeah. I would say that that statement is hit a little too hard a few too many times for it to be subtle enough for me to... I, I, I'm thinking that this is something they kept punching really hard in the dialogue yeah. to kind of inure themselves to certain attacks. <laughs> Because yeah. what we're really criticizing is our own society. Really, honestly, we are. By the way, <laughs> could we have your money? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, well, sorry, where where are we up to in the plot? Oh, oh we are, are just to about to watch where, the footage. Um, okay, so oh yeah, we've seen the girl film, on the after pole. After they discover the girl on the pole, they yeah. uh, they move on, and we see the rest of the footage where they are attacked by the uh, the tribesmen in revenge for the girl's rape and death. Uh, Jack is hit by a spear and Alan shoots him. So the team can film how the natives mutilate his corpse. Now this is all captured in um, fairly shaky cam, very realistic fashion. So this is, uh, this gets very interesting very quickly. Yeah. As the three surviving team members try to escape the scene, Faye gets captured. Uh, Alan insists that they try to rescue her and Mark continues to film as she is raped, beaten to death and then beheaded. Um, this is very well shot footage because we know they didn't kill the actress, uh, and they very artfully and carefully obstruct your view of the decapitated head with tree limbs a few times so that it looks even more disturbing and realistic. Yeah. Um, it, uh, but, but it's I mean, good. Before they, before they kill, um, Faye. We get a very deep because in contrast, I guess we get a very detailed destruction of Jack. Yeah, we see him get cut to uh, pieces before our very eyes, and his head yeah. gets cut off as well. And it's it's very well done, and it very carefully and craftily fools the eye. You can see why someone watching this film in this form would think that they just killed that guy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's 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 well done. Because that means when we see Faye get killed, although we don't actually see it, we think we do mm-hmm. because of what we've just seen to Jack. So yeah, we're imagining the same thing happening to her. It's, it's very interesting stuff. Uh, Mark continues to film. The Yamamoto um, immediately locate the last two team members as the footage ends with Alan's bloody face falling into frame. Um. That's the end of the footage. The executives yeah. are incredibly disturbed by this, as you would expect. Yeah. And the, they, one of them gets up. One of them leaves the room. One of them gets up, goes to the, the phone to call back to the, uh, to the projector and orders the footage to be destroyed. Now, we haven't talked about that screening room, but I want one of those in my house. <laughs> that is Did a nice see place, isn't it? Very comfortable chairs. Yeah, it's got like thick shag carpet all up the, the walls. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was what, 79, 79, yeah. 80? Yeah. Yeah, you could still have that stuff and not feel like you were uh, a lunatic. So, 
But what I like then at the end, so he tells the projectionist to burn the footage, and then there's a sneaky caption at the end of the film which suggests that the projectionist went... Um, and sold it. ...was fined for selling the footage or something. Yeah. So that, that adds another level of realism because we're then supposed to imagine the footage we've just seen is the footage that he stole from the TV company. Uh-huh. And the, this is where you... The film has now... If you examine it logically, you know you're watching a film about looking at some real footage. And in the film about the real footage, we're told that the footage should be destroyed. And then we discover that the film footage was sold by the projectionist. So how did the film we're watching get made unless... What we're watching is a presentation of the stolen footage, but it doesn't work because then how would you get the footage of the people actually watching the footage? (laughs) It's it it twists in on itself so many times it may actually disappear, (laughs) but it's it's really kind of fascinating on a level that it it doesn't really need to be and it doesn't bear real examination except if this is the film that the found footage genre sprang from this movie more than any found footage film movie I've seen in my life follows itself up its own ass <laughs> so well that you don't even realize it did it. Yeah, it's like um, it's like the picture of the snake eating its own tail mm-hmm. or one of those M.C. Escher paintings. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Where eventually you just can't follow the logic of it anymore because you've just been so overwhelmed. Well, the film uh, ends, uh, as you say, just before we get that bit at the end uh, with uh, giving us the information about the projectionist selling the footage, we have Monroe walk outside onto the city street and ponders to himself who the real cannibals are. And that, once again, that's not the first time the movie has put that phrase out there who you know yeah. who are the real savages and of course we're supposed to be all introspective and think gosh we really are horrible yeah, horrible people aren't we it ends on a the camera pans up to the big uh skyscrapers of new york yeah and there's this sort of suggestion that they are in just as much of a jungle as the people in Colombia. Now, here's the thing. Um, We've already touched on this a little bit when we started this discussion, but I just wanted to point out that I can admire the art of this film while simultaneously being repulsed by it. Um, It's, as we've said, very well made. They do what they set out to do very effectively, and it still works today. But I always think about what audience... In a modern day, and you know, in this day and age, in the 21st century, who would you recommend this film to? And <laughs> it's a very thin slice of the human population on Earth. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the because the film is basically having a go at the audience for watching it. Yeah, it's condemning you for wanting to see this film. Yeah, it's a bit like that film, um, that German film, Funny Games. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know that one, or there, yep. there was a there was a remake a couple of years ago. And that does a similar thing, I think. Like, but, but literally, the characters kind of, you know, tell you off, and, and they're having a go at you for enjoying watching horror films whilst you're watching a horror film. Mm-hmm. And it's almost what this film does. 
is condemns the audience for wanting to see. It's like, you want to see some of this stuff? Okay, I'm going to make you regret wanting to see some of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to make you question your own reasons for wanting to see this. Yeah. Because if this is what entertains you, what does that say about you? Yeah. And that's about as meta as I would ever want to get with this kind of thing, because maybe I just don't want to examine my own reasons, but also because it's a disturbing thought that we are sometimes attracted by repulsive things. We want to see, you know, we drive slowly by the, uh, the car accident. We, we stop and ask questions about some horrible event that someone's mentioning just out of earshot. It's sadly, it's human nature to want to know more about the tragedies and the horrible things in life. But does it paint us as human or does it paint us as monsters? And it's a tough call sometimes because wanting to know about it may be natural, but should we fight against that urge? Should we fight against wanting to see or experience this kind of thing? Or is it inevitable that we're going to want to? It's definitely a film that makes you morally confused. I think it's fair to <laughs> yes. say. Yes, that's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it's funnily enough, it's the film I own the most copies of. I think mean, I've got three different versions of it. <laughs> wow, really? And, and the, when it, well, this wasn't really on purpose. I think it's just because I was so overwhelmed by it the first time that I. I ended up writing about it and then I ended up getting some things and I really like the score. The Rizzo Talani score is really incredible. Oh, I love the score. I own the score on CD. I bought the the release of it from a few years ago. I just think it's fantastic music. Uh, And it's great the way that you get the bits of the score kind of repeat through the film until by the time you get the score with that final sequence where they're all being murdered. Yeah. And the score is just kind of bludgeoning you. (laughs) Well, it, it's uh, it's, it's, it's a really, really incredible. It's a nuanced and beautiful score that perfectly underscores the tension in scenes. It also, you talked about how the beginning of the film starts off, and you you were when you first saw the movie, you thought, oh well, this isn't going to be so bad. Well, part yeah, of that is, is nice. that beautiful music.
And it, of course, Riz Ortolani, one of the reasons I think he was asked to do the score was that he wrote the score for Mondo Carne, mm-hmm. um, like 18 years earlier in 1962. Riz Ortolani wrote the score for the first Mondo film. Yeah. And um, there was a single released called, which became known as More, which I think won an Oscar for best song. So, you know, <laughs> so Mondo Carne's score won an Oscar. And so <laughs> here, eight, 18 years later, he's scoring kind of the ultimate Mondo film that's not a Mondo film. Yeah. So that's quite a nice connection to the Mondo films that Diodato is criticizing, is, uh, is having Rizzo Tolani do the music. I've often played with the idea that the music for this film is so good that it might be this interesting experiment to introduce someone to the music and then let them know where it came from and then ask them if they would like to see the film. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I would lose friends that way. But. Yeah, probably. I mean, like you were saying, who do you watch this film with? Yeah. You're going to get your mates around for a, some beer and a movie. This is not the movie you're going to no, put on. Not at all. This is, this, I mean, this is the kind of film because I'm a, you know, I am also a, a film lecturer uh, sometimes. And this is the kind of film that you could do a lecture on because there's so much to say about it. Yes. But I would probably get fired <laughs> for, you know, for showing this film to anybody uh, in an education setting. Um, I mean, I came very close to losing my job a few years ago because I did an event with my college students about Human Centipede 2. So, <laughs> uh, and I didn't even show the film, but I got some members of the cast to come and, into the classroom and talk to the students. So I've wow. always been a little bit fascinated by this area of cinema from a sort of academic point of view, but, uh, you know, cannibal Holocaust would be the perfect film to study. If you could trust your students <laughs> to keep their damn mouths shut. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's my question. When you, when you did this thing with human centipede too, I mean, the fact that you didn't even show the film, I mean, what were there, what were the objections that got brought up? What was said? I think it was just the fact that it was human centipede too, because it was in all the press because it had been banned by the BBFC. Oh, okay. So parents, you know, freaked out about it and the staff at the unit, I got permission first and everything, but anyway, I, it, it, it could have got me into a lot of trouble, but, uh, I was fine in the end, but yeah, I had, uh, I had the main star of the film on Skype to talk to students and I had two of the mem- two of the people from the movie who were put into the centipede. They came into the classroom and talked to my students. And it was really good because I was trying, I mean, the same with, I think with any of these things, if you study them and demystify them, then it enables people to understand it and to be less horrified. And so by demystifying the human centipede too, and talking about this with the students, it helped them to understand what, why films like this exist. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, this is when I was teaching 16-year-olds. They were watching real footage of executions on, in, on the internet, you know, and all this yeah. kind of horrible stuff that gets passed around 16-year-olds. So I was trying to help them to understand this kind of thing a bit more by exploring it in context and by talking to the people who are involved with it. And anyway, so, I mean, it went quite well. But, well, I'm glad uh, you survived it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, oh the goodness. funny thing is the, the following weekend, my college got into the newspapers because a student brought a human arm in a bag 
to an art class for uh, for some still life drawing. Oh my god! Where did he and get it? So, oh, I don't know, but <laughs> like it was a bit dried up. It wasn't fresh and bleeding. Well, but uh, because that that happened, it uh, suddenly everybody forgot about me. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so adrian how much did you pay this student to bring the yeah. arm to class well i just tell you what it was a it was hard work finding the arm in the first place but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway but yeah so i've always had i mean so ever since watching cannibal holocaust and realizing that it was it was it was basically a work of art disguised as a horror film i um I've been a lot more open-minded to this kind of thing than I would have been before. I think. Yeah. I, I, it's hard to know. I of course came at this movie as a fan of exploitation films, as someone who enjoys the otter end of the film spectrum. And this was just something that I knew pushed a lot of people's buttons and was controversial and was banned in, you know, 60 countries. And this was all I walked in with. Yeah. And, to say that I got more than I bargained for is obvious, but I also got more than I bargained for in more than one way, because yeah. this is, I agree with you. It is a very intelligent film. It is a very well-made film. It's something that exceeds expectations in ways that you would never expect a film like this to do. So it's well-made and perversely thoughtful and gets under your skin but it also worms its way into your mind in an intellectual way, a way that causes you to think about something a little deeper and, and more in a more nuanced way than you might expect. I don't think that the film succeeds in what it's telling you that its major theme is. In other words, I don't think that the idea that the question of who are the real savages is relevant to this film or to my experience of it. That's not what I get out of the film intellectually. What I get out of the film intellectually is how the film works on a person viewing it. Um, it's the experience of watching the movie and how it affects me and anybody else that sees it that I find very interesting. The question of yeah. who are the real cannibals just seems silly to me because the yeah. film kind of makes it silly by triple underlining it in a silly way. Yeah, But the film, whether that's a, an accident of the art itself doing something that it wasn't intended to do or not, it's still there and it's still valid and it really is impressive. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it does. It, uh, it's by no means the perfect film, no. <clears throat> but um, but it's it's certainly above average. <laughs> and say. it's it's. Your your statement a minute ago about wanting to be able to teach this, to, to show this to large groups of people and have their visceral reaction to it be something that they discuss instead of just walking away from it and expressing disgust with it. Yeah, it's it's something that I think would make in, in the in the right position. This film could cause the opening of minds, yeah. um, not just about how things are presented on film and how narrative structures uh, worm their way into the way we think about what we see, but also in the presentation of images to 
force emotions out of you, to push you in certain directions that may make you do things you don't want to do. Diodato stated that one of the things that made him want to make this film were the uh, the ter- was the terrorism of the time in Italy, the Red Brigade and all the attacks that they were doing, and how yeah. devastating and and questionable all of this stuff was, and how it upset him that he felt he couldn't trust the newscasters. He felt that they were staging certain things, that they were slanting uh, some of the news in certain ways to paint uh, some of the terrorist acts in better or worse uh, in better or worse lights. And it seems to me that if that was one of his uh, goals was to kind of draw attention to that, the fact that that can be done and that you might not be aware of it, he may have succeeded too well. Uh, you're right. You, you were talking earlier about how the, the film may be a victim of its own success or its own excesses. And the yeah. fact that he didn't get that across or he has to point it out to people years after the fact is unfortunate. Absolutely. Have you, um, I mean, are you familiar with Deodato's other films? Have you seen any of his other movies? Oh, I've seen quite a few. Yeah. Um, I'm actually having, okay, I'll admit that this may be, a, this may have been one of the first of his films I ever saw. And so I was not expecting to back up and see some of his earlier films and to actually be impressed. That sounds terrible, but it's true. So <laughs> when I, when I backed up and started seeing some of his earlier movies, And when you see live like a cop, die like a man, it's really well done. It's a good crime movie. And even when you get into that's his favorite film. That's a hell of a movie. That's all the movies he's made. That's the one he's the most proud of. Yeah. And he, he should be. It's a, it's a really good movie, but he's made other good movies that are also kind of start. Well, he, before he made this, he made jungle Holocaust, which is not, in any way as disgusting as this, it's actually a pretty good jungle adventure film with some, you know, with some nastiness, but it's, it's far from being uh, anything that's going to push the buttons that this movie pushes. Yeah. But it's another well done exploitation film, not something that's going to gross anybody out really, but it, it it's well, it's well made. And even when you go past this film and look at, you know, silly things like the Raiders of Atlantis or, uh, you know, the uh, I recently uh, finally saw uh, a movie he made in 1988 called Dial Help, which is this uh, pretty silly uh, horror film. But it's very well made and I really enjoyed it. Um, oh, yeah. it. The problems with it are all budgetary and you can see it, but he still made a good movie. Um, when he made Cannibal Holocaust and ended up being in court and everything, and he didn't get to make any more films for about two or three years. Yeah. But luckily for him, before Cannibal Holocaust came out, he'd already made The House on the Edge of the Park. Mm-hmm. So that came out whilst he was in court for this film. And, then and that's that film, a disturbing film, too. Yeah. <laughs> He's got two films that were on the video nasties list in this country, and they were both of them. And they came out right after each other. And House on the Edge of the Park is a completely different film to Cannibal Holocaust. But I think he's also, in with that film, attempting to criticize uh, a certain kind of, you know, the home invasion. It's like almost like it's a, a criticism of the home invasion film. Yeah, it seems to be. And he, and he used the actor. I used, um, uh, in House on the Edge of the Park, he used the main villain 
in um, the last, last house, house on the left. Yeah, David Hess. David Hess. And it's almost yeah. as if he is using him to make sure that you can't miss the fact that he's playing off of that movie and kind of taking it in a slightly different direction, but also in a nastier, more mean-spirited yeah. direction. I see House on the Edge of the Park as an unofficial sequel to Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> uh, you oh, look I at like that. David Hess's character is dressed in the white suit with the black shirt. Yeah. He's like a he's like a slightly low lower rent version of John Travolta's character. What a it's disturbing like if he hadn't thought! Gone off to become a successful dancer, he's just become a serial killer instead. <laughs> God, <laughs> that is a disturbing idea. Yeah, it kind of well, was. On the Diodato front, in '85, he made Cut and Run, which seems like someone decided they wanted to hire him to kind of do something in the cannibal Holocaust vein. But then, somewhere along the line, somebody said, No, we need to make something that's actually kind of a jungle adventure film instead of this grotesque, horrible thing where people get ripped in half by trees. So, yeah. I think Diodato's at his best when. He is carefully crafting horrific images to <laughs> to bother you. He does that even in um, I've got I've got one of his films uh, from uh, right before he made Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man that I still haven't watched called Waves of Lust, which oh, I hear yes. good things about. But, I haven't um, seen that either. I'd like to. Yeah, I, it's uh, I've heard very good things about it. It's it's been well reviewed. I like the cast and it sounds interesting, but I haven't watched it yet. But it's it's. Uh, the fact that they're, you know, you, you look further along in his career and you see things like Phantom of Death and Body Count, which are essentially kind of slasher films. The thing is, he even, I liked Body Count because he actually brings some style to what could have been, if, as you can tell from the title, just a by kind of obvious thing. But he's got enough talent and enough desire to make something worth seeing that even something like that is well done. Yeah. He's, uh, I mean, cause he was one of those directors who didn't really stick with a genre. He would, you know, like a lot of the Italian directors, he just made films, whatever needed doing. He mean, he yeah. made a Hercules film and, and that kind of stuff as well. Um, and I liked his Hercules what, film too. What I'd really like to see is Concord affair 79. I know. I would like to see that one too. I've never seen that, but I'd love to see that one. Looks fun. Well, Conc I mean, you look at the cast: James Franciscus, Mimsy Farmer. I'm yeah. already on board. So Edmund Purdom. It's just if I could get my hands on it, I would probably watch it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's an interesting director, and I mean, he's a very nice man. Like I said, I've been lucky enough to uh, meet him a couple of times. I met him again last summer when I was in Rome at uh, at a film uh, conference. I'm and jealous he, of you, man. He was very pleased when I brought a copy of uh, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man for him to sign. Good. Because I think more than all, you know, more often than not, he's signing Cannibal Holocaust stuff. So I think he's always pleased if you've got something different for him to sign. Oh, if somebody would put out uh, a Blu-ray of Body Count, I'd love to have him sign that. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't so, like that movie yeah. as much as I do. They, uh, there's a company in this country called Shameless who who put out the Blu-ray of Cannibal Holocaust, and recently they released uh, The Washing Machine on DVD. Which I've not and seen. They released it in metal packaging, so it looks like the front of a washing machine. <laughs> That's awesome. So I haven't, I haven't got that one, but I'm curious about that. 
there's, I've been uh, there's curious one other about thing, that one. There's one other thing I'd like to mention, actually, before we sort of finish up. Sure. Um, about Cannibal Holocaust. Robert Kerman, the actor who played Monroe, um, I read recently on Facebook that he is currently in, he's in a nursing home. I think he's quite ill. Oh, my goodness. And he doesn't have any family or something, apparently. And so there's been a bit of a campaign online to get people to write to him so that he's getting posts from fans while he's in this nursing home. I mean, he's only about 68, so he's not exactly ancient, but I think he's, he's unwell. Hmm. So if you um, – he's at a place called the Komanoff Center for Geriatric Medicine, which I think sounds a bit like uh, something out of a Cronenberg film, the, the Komanoff Center. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But if you Google Robert Kerman and Komanoff Center, that's with a K, or just nursing home, I suppose, if you want to write him a letter, anyone who's listening – and tell him how much you like him in Cannibal Holocaust or Debbie Loves, Loves Dallas, uh, Does Dallas. <laughs> or he was even in Night of the Creeps actually as well. So uh, yeah, he, he was in that. He was also uh, strangely enough, you know, he played a tugboat captain in uh, Spider-Man in 2002. Oh yeah, he did. That was weird. Yeah, bit of a random bit of casting. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So if anybody wants to uh, send him a letter, apparently he'll he will be very grateful. Well, I'll I'll look that up myself and include a note in the I'll I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, I know I will be glad to write it. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the, it's because we think about these people. You know, when they make these films, they're kind of preserved in aspic, but in real life, they're getting older, yeah. and they don't necessarily have pensions or savings accounts or, you know, the film that they were in may be a cult classic now but they just got paid a fee to do it at the time. They're not making residuals. And so a lot of actors who were in these cult movies are now just not doing too great. So it's kind of a nice idea to be able to give something back to somebody like that. I think I agree. I agree. All right, Adrian. So cannibal Holocaust, um, not something easily recommended, but if you are curious, I think we would both point you toward it and say, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, how old are your children when you're going to show this to them? <laughs> well, okay, definitely not for a while. Uh, <laughs> my children are currently 12 and uh, 10. So at least um, a year or so, right? So you know they've seen they've seen some Hammer films and they've seen some Jackie Chan films, uh, but no Cannibal films yet. And that's it'll, probably it'll for be the a few best. years. But I mean, like, like we said before, who do you recommend this film to? Because if you get that recommendation wrong, they will not be your friend anymore. <laughs> exactly. And I think you have to be even more careful when they're members of your own family. So I don't know. <laughs> it can make the holidays a very uncomfortable time. <laughs> the perfect Thanksgiving mo- afternoon movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's sit down and watch this disgusting thing. <laughs> it would certainly stop people wanting to eat any more turkey. Um, this is true. You can control your appetite very effectively. I mean, there's one interesting thing I wanted to mention, actually, that um, there's a really good book you can get called Cannibal Holocaust and the Savage Cinema of Ruggiero Deodato, ah. uh, which came out a few years ago by uh, Fab Press. And there's a story in here that I just wanted to tell you from Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, where is it? Um, about the sort of the, the how some of the things – uh, I guess just the, the connections between reality and, and fiction. 
he talks about the fact that when they were in Colombia to go filming, um, they got themselves a guide. And Deodato found out that their guide was organizing um, safaris for German tourists. But these safaris were to shoot uh, the local tribes people, the, the Indios. What? And so, yeah, he was organizing safaris. It's a Murder bit like natives. That. Yeah, basically. And then they would just throw the bodies in the river. So they would just get eaten by piranhas and crocodiles and nobody would ever, ever know. <laughs> so, so when Deodato found this out, he uh, reported him to the local police and he was arrested and went to prison. And apparently the guide has promised and made this public that if Deodato ever goes back to Colombia, he's a dead man. Oh my God. <laughs> so it, that's the kind of environment that Deodato and his crew were working in. And, and uh, Carl York has talked in interviews about the fact that there were times where he wasn't sure if he was shooting a real movie or a snuff movie. Yeah. And a lot of thought, the crew and cast have said similar things. Yeah. He thought he might die. Uh, <laughs> and the fact that they've got their, their local guides are people who murder natives for, for sport oh my God. in a kind of most dangerous game sort of style. So this film is fascinating on a, on a number of levels, I think. I, uh, yeah, you can see that this is not the kind of film that could really be made today. No. I mean, um, I no. hate to say that uh, I went out and saw the wretched piece of garbage called The Green Inferno. Yeah, no, see, I still haven't seen that. I'm curious about it because obviously Eli Roth is the world's biggest Diodato fan. And he's also the world's biggest douche. But, <laughs> <sighs> but he, uh, The Green Inferno is terrible. It's it It learned every lesson that it could from this film and then pissed all over them. It's just, this is exactly the kind of film that I would expect from someone who doesn't quite understand the genre, but thinks he does to make this. The green inferno cannot build in an intensity. It constantly undercuts itself by reminding you that what you're watching is stupid and poorly written. So, um, I, if you're curious about Eli Roth's Green Inferno, check it out. I I don't even just think it's not a patch on this. I think that it's an embarrassment on its own. But fair enough. Yeah. I, you know, there are so many films out there that I want to watch. I probably won't bother. <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're curious, I, I I'll be honest. After this discussion, I would love to hear your take on the film, even okay. if it's just to kind of shake your head and agree with me, or to yeah. explain to me how I missed <clears throat> I missed it completely, whatever it might be. I mean, I think perhaps it's evidence that the cannibal genre needs to be left alone. You know, it it was it it lasted for a few years in the late seventies and early eighties, and then everybody moved on. Yeah, and perhaps that's where it's best left. I agree. I agree. Adrian, thank you very much for coming on and discussing this. Well, thank you for uh, for inviting me, and well for for accepting my self invite you know, inviting myself onto the show. Uh, <laughs> I'm really glad to have been able to talk about this finally. I mean, I, I I did suggest this as a film several times to the B movie cast back in the day. Yeah, uh, rather optimistically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think, it, you know, as I've said, it, it's a film that needs to be talked about so i'm grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to somebody who 
is uh, more sympathetic than most other people I could talk to about it. Oh, I'm, I'm just, like I say, I wouldn't have talked about this film probably ever for the podcast without you suggesting it. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you did. Are you planning to do any more Margaretti films in the future? Oh, certainly. Uh, we are going to do at least three or four more. We don't have a set schedule. Um, in January, we have tentative plans to cover the next one, which is the first one my co-host has picked. Um, God save me. Uh, we're going to be talking about his Disney ripoff film, Mr. Super Invisible. Great. Um, so you which, just, you've got to love these titles. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> but it's uh, it's not a film I'm looking forward to. I haven't watched it yet because I'm kind of girding my loins for uh, disappointment. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> because the thing is, I'm not even a fan of the Disney films that this is, you know, <coughs> aping uh, those no, live well, action Disney films from the late yeah, 60s, there, early 70s. I think they're there's, there's loads of those films. Disney films that nobody ever watches anymore. Aren't they? Yeah, and there's a reason they're charmless. They're so bland and colorless that uh, I cannot – there's a part of me that can't wait to see what Margarita may have been able to do with this. But I suspect that if he's wanting to make one very much in the same style, it will be terrible. Yeah, that's true. I suppose if, if the film that he's copying is something that's gonna, that wasn't that good anyway, then yeah, it's not going <laughs> to be great. But you know, Deodato told me how much he loved Margarita. He was a really good friend to him and helped him out a lot with his career. But he did tell me that he didn't think his films were very good. Oh, I disagree. Um, he said that he was he spent too much time being obsessed with the miniatures and the special effects and not enough time with the actors and the script. And the thing is, you you talk to the actors and the and the people, the craftsmen who worked on his movies, and they all have nothing but praise for him. They all have these hysterical stories and all the behind the scenes footage that you see mm. is just you know, him having fun with these people and getting things done in a, in a yeah. way that keeps smiles on people's faces. And he was just, he seemed like such an affable, fun guy to work with. So, yeah, but he didn't spend enough time on the script. <laughs> Often. I don't think he had the time. No, well, exactly. <laughs> I don't when think there was the time four, to spare. Making saw four science fiction films with, with special effects in three months, then, you know, yeah. What, you're yeah, not going to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. Anyway. All right. I look forward to hearing what you've got to say about Mr. Super Invisible. I look forward to seeing what I have to say about it, too. (laughs) Thank you again, Adrian. Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye.
still good? Yeah, we're good. Okay. Um, <laughs> you talking about our friendship or the? Uh, <laughs> oh, I wish I didn't have to carve that part out. But yes, uh, <laughs> our friendship. Are we still good? Do you still love me? I'm so needy. Okay.